How's everybody doing? Let's, uh, let's open in prayer, and then we've got a 20-minute video tonight, and let me, let me encourage you to think about a word. Hope, and how we're going to see that come out in both the video and uh, some things we will specify as we get into uh, chapter 2 this evening. Uh, what we're going to see in chapter 2 will continue from last, last week. We just kind of barely set the table uh, introducing Daniel chapter 2. And uh, I want us to go ahead tonight, if possible, to try to finish out this chapter. Uh, if you want some paper to write on, I, I gave out paper last week. And uh, I'm not really asking you to write a testimony or anything tonight like I did last week. But if you need some extra paper, if you'd raise your hand and uh, if, if you need any paper... Anybody? Uh-huh. It's just a blank sheet if you need it. Anybody? There you go. Anybody? Okay. Uh, let's pray, and we will get started. Brother David. Lift us up in prayer, if you would, please. Welcome back to Thriving in Babylon. Last time we talked about how God can use trials to test our faith and prepare us to survive and thrive where he has us. Larry explained that when we endure trial, we can come out on the other side with perspective, confidence, and courage. In this session, Larry will explain what happens when we look at life through a lens of biblical hope and gratitude like Daniel did. We'll explore what it means to have hope and what behaviors might be keeping us in the dark. Listen to Don share what led to his most hopeless moment and how God met him there. I'm number 10 of 11 kids, so from a big family. Had an extremely uh, faithful, godly mom. She loved Jesus and was always teaching us about Christ. Had an extremely violent father not a believer, abusive. I saw my dad one time come after me with a hammer. There was also other members of the family who sexually abused me. So at a very young age, I was quite confused on my mom telling me how good God was, but all these other things going on in my life, it was difficult. She always would 
just say little things like God is faithful, God will work it out. My two heroes were my uh, my two middle brothers, George and Doug. Uh, they weren't the best people, but I just loved them. I thought the world of them. George uh, got into really serious heroin addiction. As I got a little older, he got really bad. And I remember one night I was sleeping on the couch uh, and the knock on the door. And I was the one to answer. Uh, the cops said, uh, somewhere's your mom. And I don't know why, but instantly I knew there was something wrong with my brother. And finally, my mom came downstairs, and I remember very distinctly hearing him say, your son was murdered tonight. I was angry. I was angry at God. But my mom just said, you know, God's going to work it out. But I didn't know how. I just took one of my heroes. My sister Vicky, by this time, had become a heroin addict. And I was embarrassed, you know, Friday nights. I would see my own sister on the street selling herself for drugs. And all of that led through, honestly, to a dichotomy in me. There was an immense desire to love God. And there was an immense desire not to trust Him. So I became very depressed, and extremely depressed. So I was going to go back home, and I was going to take my life. I remember it was Wednesday morning when I wrote the note, and I said, God, I'll give you one more chance. I said, the only reason I haven't taken my life right now because it will kill my mom. And I said, God, please show me that you're real. Show me that you care, because right now I can't see it. That night, God really spoke. And that night, I made a commitment that I was going to follow him no matter what, no matter how hard it got. I said, God, I'll do anything. Forgive me. Through my life, through the difficulties, the struggles, the pain, God has really shown himself faithful the whole way. And I was a messed up guy who was selfish. I was heading the same place my dad and my brothers and my rest of my family was going. And God says, Donna, no, I have a better plan for you. And even though Satan had it to destroy me, God had better plans. Have you ever felt like Don, angry at God, confused, and full of despair? His story illustrates the temptation we all have to lose hope when life is dark, but we can hope in a lot of things. What does it mean to have hope that pulls us out of the lion's den and into the arms of God? Hope that sustains. Let's find out. You know, if you think about it, a despairing Christian is an oxymoron because despair is never from God. Um, there's this sense in which we can worry. There's this sense in which we can be upset. Jesus sweat, as it were, drops of blood when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But in the deepest part of our being, if we understand who our God is, we will never be people of despair. Today, one of the problems that we run into in our, our culture is, is we have lost what I like to call biblical hope. And one of the key secrets of Daniel was his biblical hope. It was all built on his understanding of God's sovereignty, his willingness to go through the trials that the Lord had before him. And what he came out with at the end of that was hope, humility, and wisdom. And, and, and today, I really want to dig into this idea of biblical hope. 
because in our culture, when we talk about hope, it, it's kind of wishful thinking. Uh, I hope you have a great vacation. Uh, I hope our team is able to win the game. But the biblical concept of hope goes far beyond wishful thinking to absolute confidence. When the Bible says Jesus' return is our blessed hope, it doesn't mean that we're, we're, we, we hope he comes. I, oh, I just wish he would come. No, I, we are certain he will come. And because of that certainty, we end up living different. Now, part of the problem that we face today in attacking biblical hope is not only that the word has been redefined, but also there are some kind of hope killers that are out there. And one of the biggest ones is uh, something called GIGO. It's an old computer uh, term, and it means garbage in, garbage out. And uh, it, it, the way it works is if, if you have bad code, you're gonna have bad results that come out. Now, the way our life goes as well when we walk with the Lord is if we are putting garbage into our heart, misinformation, negative information, only the world's information, garbage in, what's gonna come is garbage out. And much of the despair that I find that goes on in our, our Christian world today as our culture crumbles is because we've got a lot of garbage that's coming in. And in particular, much of it, frankly, comes from the media. Uh, I uh, have learned over time that the more that someone listens to talk radio or the more that someone listens to some of our Christian radio shows, the more despairing they are because, candidly, to keep the ratings up, they've always got to show us what the newest crisis de jour is. And uh, the more we listen to it, the more we get caught up in it. I had a friend a number of years ago came to me and he said, Larry, you're pretty well educated. You know what's going on in the world. How come you're not always bummed out? And I looked at him and I said, well, that's because I watch what goes into my heart and what goes into my mind. And I make sure I'm not putting a lot of negativity in there without balancing it out with the truth of scripture. I sent him on a six week fast from uh, any sort of uh, of negative media, talk radio, or whatever. And he came back to me about six weeks later and he said, this is amazing, my attitude is completely better. And I said, well, it's simple. You had good go in instead of garbage go in. You were focused on scripture, a God who is in control, a God who is sovereign. And that's changed everything about the way you look at the situation you're facing. You know, at the end of the day, what all of us Christians have to remember is, is we know how the story ends. You know, I have a lot of people in my church, they always want me to teach the book of Revelation, but candidly, they don't want me to teach the book of Revelation, they just want me to tell them who the Antichrist is. And uh, I'm not so sure. Uh, I've decided that I'm on the welcoming committee more than the programming committee. So I, at the end of the day, say, you know, maybe uh, I, I don't wanna answer all the questions you have, but I will tell you something. I have peaked at the end of the book and I've got some really good news. We win. And when I know that we win, everything changes. You know, perhaps you are, uh, have a favorite sports team. I can guarantee that if you do, one of your favorite games that team has played would be a game in which they were hopelessly behind and had some sort of miracle finish to pull it out. Now, as you were experiencing that, it was not a very good thing. You were maybe throwing things at the television and pretty upset, like, ah, oh, what's going on here? But once you knew how the game ended, you could go back and watch a tape of that game, and the very things that upset you in real time will now be played again in slow motion because you know the end results. What would happen to us as Christians if we would be so dialed in, not to the third quarter score and what's going on right now, but we would be dialed in to how we know the game is gonna end? Well, I want to believe that everything would be different because we would be men and women like Daniel of hope. 
You see Romans 8, 28, that all things eventually are going to work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, that's, that's not happy talk. That's not a Christian cliche. That's not a little phrase for a coffee mug. That's deep, deep spiritual truth. It's a spiritual truth that hope is built on. I was uh, in higher education. I was working on a PhD when I was at Virginia Tech. I would have classified myself as an intellectual and I was just very proud of that. I, I kind of made fun of Christians. I thought they were shallow. I thought uh, religion was a crutch that people used to get through life uh, to avoid thinking about death and things like that. When the shooting occurred at Virginia Tech, our indication that something was wrong was we actually heard the bullets. So it was a, a beautiful spring day, and uh, all of a sudden we started hearing this popping sound. One of my colleagues said, well, wait a second, those are bullets. When the tragedy struck, I was shaken in a way that was overwhelming. We ended up having roughly 40 to 45,000 people at the candlelight vigil. For me, there was just a real haunting question. What if you would have been in your building? Would you have been ready? And the answer to that was no. And I was just very unsettled by this. Fast forward a couple weeks, and an author named Philip Yancey, a very popular author, comes to campus. And I was very moved by his presentation. The church that organized it passed out these little cards. And I turned it over, and lo and behold, there was a statement there. If you'd like to talk with somebody about a relationship with Christ, check here. I says, okay, I'm going to check the box. And so the next day, the head pastor who had organized the event was in my office. He said, oh, where are you at with your relationship with God? I gave him the standard agnostic responses. And he said something interesting to me. He said, uh, okay, Steve, we can do two things. We can spend the next six months talking about your questions, and then you can decide if you'd like to give your life to Christ. Or you can give your life to Christ right now. And I said the most painful thing I've ever said in my entire life. I said, Jim, what if it doesn't work? I said, what if I'm not worthy of God's love? And I went home that night, and so I started thinking about the shooting. In a moment, my head cocked 90 degrees to a plaque that I had on the wall. It was a plaque footprints. And I just started sobbing because I realized in that moment, it wasn't me that had got me through that, but it was God, that he had carried me because he loved me that much. I contacted Jim and I said, Jim, I don't care what my questions are. I'm giving my life to this God. As I have thought through the Virginia Tech experience, as, as difficult as it was, God used that to bring me to him. I've learned that we need to embrace tragedy as an opportunity to glorify Jesus. And sometimes he'll solve those things for us. Sometimes we'll just have to go through it. But in either case, I'm with him. Steve's story is an encouraging reminder of the love and grace of our God who brings life from death, beauty from ashes, and miracles from our messes. 
Many of us have experienced this gospel of grace, yet we often forget. Like the Israelites, we need to be reminded again and again of the grace of our God so we can live grateful lives of service. So how do we develop this thing called hope? Well, we've already seen much of it has to do with what we put in. Do we garbage in, garbage out, or we put in scripture into our hearts and into our minds? But there's something else that it can be very powerful when it comes to developing hope. And that is to uh, do some practical things to build an attitude of gratitude. You know, if you have a glass of water that's half full, the proverbial half full glass, some people are going to look at it and say, man, how lucky I am. Somebody put some water in this cup. And others are going to look at that glass and say, man, who drank my water? It's the same amount of water either way, but everything changes on, based on what we look at and, and how we evaluate it. And we can do the same thing with our life because for every one of us, our life is full of difficulties and hardships and things we don't understand. And they're also full of blessings from our Lord. And those who develop hope into their lives usually are people who have an attitude of gratitude. Now, whether you journal all the things that God does or you're not that kind of person and, and you like to just kind of walk around and, and think or pray through them, in some way, it's pretty important to, in a concrete way, identify what those blessings are. Don't let them just be ethereal and, and, and general out there, but identify specifically what they are. And what you will discover is your hope will grow as you are doing that. Now, there are some things that will kill off that attitude of gratitude. Not only giggle, garbage in, garbage out that we saw earlier, but there are three specific things I want to warn you to watch out for. The first one, uh, I, I call men who cry wolf. Now, who are the men who cry wolf? Well, there are people who have a history of stirring up the crisis de jour. As a pastor of a church, I'm always getting people who want me to check out something online or read a book or, or listen to somebody's uh, talk about uh, the crisis de jour or whatever that would be. And uh, these people are always crying out that the end is near, the end is near, the sky is falling. I think back to uh, the turn of the century. There was something called Y2K. Some of you might remember it. Everybody was up in arms, and a lot of Christians were, that uh, everything was going to fall apart on that particular first day of uh, the new millennium. Well, anybody who knew much about computers and computer clocks and all that realized this was not going to be a problem. But until you had January 1st of that particular year, there was no way you could overcome the men who cried wolf because there was no proof that they were wrong yet. But here's what you can do when you run across those kind of people. Check their track record. You will discover that people have a history of crying wolf. And if they're screaming and yelling about the world falling apart today, and it's the second or third time they've done it and they've been wrong, that's somebody that you and I need to stop listening to. Because men who cry wolf will tear apart our hope and fill us with fear. Now, a second thing that can create a, a loss of attitude of gratitude and undercut our hope is what I like to call spiritual myopia. And that's when I'm so focused on the evil in front of me, I can't see anything else. The solution is very simple. Part of it's getting into the Word of God. Part of it is knowing the stories of people like Daniel and Joseph and others who even in the midst of evil weren't able to not only survive but to thrive. In other words, you step back and you get perspective because there is always going to be evil in front of us. And whenever I let that become my primary focus and my primary worry, hope is going to disappear from my life. Well, along with men who cry uh, wolf 
and along with spiritual myopia, there's also another thing called spiritual amnesia. And myopia focuses on all the evil in front of me, amnesia forgets all the blessings behind me. And sometimes, you know, we can get caught with both of them. I think of the children of Israel. As they left Egypt, they found themselves with a body of water in front of them, mountains on two sides of them, and behind them, the Egyptian army charging. And what did they do? They cried out, my God, my God, why have you sent us out here to die? Think how different that story would have been if instead of the myopia of seeing the problem, instead of the amnesia of forgetting the blessings in the past, they'd had some leaders who didn't cry wolf, but cried God is here, who said, hey folks, wasn't it a short time ago we were slaves? And don't you remember that first plague and that second plague and that third plague? and that Passover, and when we plundered the Egyptians because they gave us all their jewelry and their gold just so we would get out of here? Is it possible the God who did all that might figure a way out of the mess that we're in today? You see, hope is a choice. And our hope will grow when we choose to feed an attitude of gratitude and the history of God's working with others the history of scripture, and the history of our own life. When we learn to feed that into our souls, hope will grow. Larry challenged us to remember how the biblical story ends. Our God wins and we're on his team. He explains how hope is found in that truth. And he encouraged us to stay in God's word and remember what God has already done in the world and in our lives to avoid negativity. Both Don and Steve experienced the hope of Christ when he met them in their darkest moments of despair and doubt. They live grateful lives in response. As you go through the Bible study lesson together, share what truths about God give you biblical hope and what ways you might need to adjust your focus to develop an attitude of gratitude. See you next time. Okay, in Daniel 2... Um the theme of hope, we obviously see how in the end, um, talking about how God wraps things up in the end, um, the Lord wins. The Lord's kingdom is forever. The mess that we see the world in today does not go on and on and on the way it is now, right? Uh, now, as we read Daniel, I want you to understand what we've been saying too. It's not just the story of one nation being stronger than another nation. Uh, but Daniel being in a pagan court is salt and light in that court, right? The most impossible odds against him. And yet, he is a witness for God in that environment. We look at our situation today, and it's, it's like Daniel's in many ways. Uh, all the paganism in society. And how we definitely seem to be in the minority. And yet we see in Daniel what God can do uh, to use us as salt and light where he's planted us. Well, let's read again, uh, beginning in verse 1. I know it's a lengthy chapter. But uh, let's read again what's going on there in Daniel chapter 2. And uh, we're going to spend about five to seven minutes probably catching back up where we were from last week. 
But then we're going to go on and try to finish out this chapter tonight. It says, One night during the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had such disturbing dreams that he couldn't sleep. He called in his magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, and he demanded that they tell him what he had dreamed. As they stood before the king, he said, I've had a dream that deeply troubles me, and I must know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, Long live the king, tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. But the king said to the astrologers, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you will be torn limb from limb, and your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. They said again, Please, your majesty, tell us the dream. And we will tell you what it means. The king replied, I know what you're doing. You're stalling. You're stalling for time because you know that I'm serious when I say, if you don't tell me the dream, you're doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream, and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. The astrologers replied to the king, no one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. The king was furious when he heard this, and he ordered that all the wise men of Babylon be executed. And because of the king's decree... Men were sent to find and kill Daniel and his friends. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, came to kill them, Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. He asked Arioch, why has the king issued such a harsh decree? So Arioch told him all that had happened. Daniel went at once to see the king and requested more time to tell the king what the dream meant. Then Daniel went home and told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what had happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. That night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven. He said, praise the name of God forever and ever for he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in darkness, though he is surrounded by light. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. Then Daniel went in to see Arioch, whom the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. Daniel said to him, Don't kill the wise men. Take me to the king, and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Arioch quickly took Daniel to the king and said, I have found one of the captives from Judah who will tell the king the meaning of his dream. The king said to Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, Is this true? 
Can you tell me what my dream was and what it means? Daniel replied, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. While your majesty was sleeping, you dreamed about coming events. He who reveals secrets has shown you what is going to happen. And it's not because I'm wiser than anyone else that I know the secret of your dream, but because God wants you to understand what was in your heart. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from the mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small bits of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He's made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom represented by bronze will rise to rule the world. Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, 
for you have been able to reveal this secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him many valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon while Daniel remained in the king's court. We mentioned last week, uh, for those who weren't here, that Daniel chapter 2 is a pivotal chapter in the Bible. And anybody wishing to understand history and the rise and fall of nations certainly cannot afford to ignore Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2 has been referred to as the prophetic alphabet uh, because of what it tells us about the kingdoms to come. It's been said that while Revelation is the XYZ of prophecy, Daniel is the ABC of prophecy. Well, there's, as we talked about last week too, there's been such a resurgence in the past four or five decades of end time events. I mean, folks, we've seen that all around us, right? The plethora of books and films and videos. Everybody's interested in what's the end going to look like? And what's everybody interested in? Are we near the end? And who's the Antichrist? And, you know, are we going to know who he is? And are we going to recognize him? And what's the mark of the beast? And, uh, you know, the 666. And all, everybody wants to know what this means. But what did we say last week about prophecy? Is the point to satisfy your curiosity? No. The point is so that you and I will be drawn closer to the Lord. That we will see what a sovereign God He is. And seeing what a sovereign God He is and how He controls all the kingdoms of the world, you and I can be assured that history is, is not just on some kind of crash course of a bunch of coincidences and we're not the victims of fate or, or chance. God is directing everything. Amen? And you and I can have that assurance. God is directing everything. The Bible says that God puts one nation down or one king down and he rises up another. It's God who does this. We need to understand that. Now, with that being said, we, you know, we look at chapter 2 and chapter 2 paints a picture of world empires from 600 years before Christ all the way across the centuries until Christ comes back. Daniel 2 covers all of that. And now Daniel 2 we've seen too very plainly in reading it. It's a vision. It's a vision and a dream that God gave to a pagan king. 
Now, we need to review again for a moment what's going on here in Daniel chapter 2. From 605 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar first came into Jerusalem and invaded Judah, we said last week that that began something in world history from a biblical standpoint of view. What did, what did 605 begin? The times of the Gentiles, exactly. The times of the Gentiles that we are still in today. Uh, we talked last week, first of all, about... The dream that disturbed. In verse 1, we're told when this dream took place. And we're told that Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. It's in the plural. And he was so troubled by these dreams, he couldn't sleep. Here he is, the most powerful man around, and yet he can't sleep. His dreams have disturbed him Particularly this one. God wasn't letting him sleep. Like in the book of Esther. How God would not let the king sleep. And so finally Nebuchadnezzar is so fearful of his dreams. And this one in particular. That he calls for all of his wise men and enchanters to to come and tell him what's going on. And verse 2 breaks them down into four different classes. Pagans are famous for seeking out mediums and spiritists and palm readers and all that sort of stuff. But remember what the Bible says about this? We read out of Isaiah last week. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers. Those who, are, who seek after messages from the dead. Necromancers. Who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Folks, why in the world would people want to go after these spiritists and so forth when when we have a God who's given us his word and one thing that should never ever ever happen is a Christian visiting one of these places but you know Christians shouldn't even do something else that's related to this and and a lot of Christians think it's it's uh, it's more tame what am I talking about horoscopes You and I have no business looking for messages about our future in horoscopes. Folks, stuff like this is what pagans do who don't know God. Now, in verse 3, notice that while verse 1 said he had dreams, this one in particular disturbed him to the point he's like, I've got to know what this one means. We also pointed out, still reviewing a little bit from last week, that Hebrews 1 points out for us that in times past, God would speak to people through dreams and visions, right? 
In these last days, has he spoken to us? In his son. But God was speaking to pagan Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Verse 4, we see him addressing the king with this typical oriental courtesy. Old king, live forever. Verse 5, I've mentioned there's an interpretive issue. The King James says, uh, has Nebuchadnezzar saying, it's gone from me, indicating he's forgotten this dream. Many other translations say, I have firmly decided not to tell you. You can make a case for either translation. In either way, it doesn't make that much difference. He knows that these guys are really wise men and they're worth their salt and what he's paying them on the payroll of of the Babylonian Empire, they ought to be able to tell him. And if they can't, they're fakes and frauds. Well, we know they're fakes and frauds, right? And he finds that out too. And he also gives them great warning if they can't. He's going to have them torn limb from limb, but he's going to reward them greatly if they can tell him. So they stall and argue with him back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Finally, he lowers the hammer. He says, I've had enough of this. Gives the command, they all must die. Well, Daniel being in this group, even though he's still in training, he's going to have to die too, right? What did we close out last week saying we see here? The inability of human power and the inability of human wisdom, right? All of his best men could not tell him what he wanted to know. Kind of like Humpty Dumpty, right? All of the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Here were the Babylonians who wrote books on interpreting dreams. But they were utterly helpless to be able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what he wanted to know. Reveals the condition of the human heart. Apart from revelation from God, human wisdom is worthless. And it cannot save. Wisdom and salvation are of the Lord. Well, let's look at, let's just call it the Daniel, the Daniel who dared, verses 14 to 18. What do you notice about Daniel's state of mind? anything stand out to you about Daniel? Wasn't afraid. Already in chapter 1, we've seen how God gave Daniel great wisdom and discernment and composure, right? Here's a young man, and God has given him this gift of wisdom and discernment. And, and we really see it come into play here. He's not afraid. Here they come for Daniel too. He probably, he doesn't know everything that's transpired. He wants to know why the king is so enraged. Now folks, notice how Nebuchadnezzar's court of advisors have 
developed, I think, a, a great admiration, admiration and respect for Daniel that we saw back in chapter 1. Because, I mean, you would have thought under normal circumstances they'd have just said, shut up, boy, come on, you're going to die. But Arioch takes time with Daniel, explains to Daniel what's going on. That says something to us about how leaders had already come to respect Daniel. Now, what does that say to you and me about how we ought to represent ourselves before people in society? Without fear, but what else? Strong in our faith. We ought to be such role models, such men and women of integrity and character that even unbelievers, even if they don't agree with you, they have a respect for you. Because they, they see how you walk and carry yourself. Right? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, Nebuchadnezzar must already know of the wisdom and integrity of Daniel too. So he grants Daniel time. Daniel goes before him and says, you know, there's, a human being can't do this. But there's a God in heaven. Give me time. And the amazing thing is, here again, already from the close of Daniel 1, what do we see? When Nebuchadnezzar has examined Daniel and Daniel's three friends, what did the close of chapter 1 say about that? Nebuchadnezzar, in his interviews of them, he finds them ten times better than everybody else. So Nebuchadnezzar, not just his court of officials, but Nebuchadnezzar himself has seen something special about Daniel. And so here's this dictator who is known for being brutal. This young man comes before him and requests time. You know, he thinks his wise men are just trying to stall and they're fakes and frauds and they're trying to stall and get away with something. Daniel asked for time and he knows Daniel's different. And so he grants Daniel that opportunity. That says something too, doesn't it? Well, what does Daniel do? Gathers friends and prays. James 1.5. What's James 1.5 say? Ask of God ask God for wisdom so Daniel gets his buddies together and they go before God in prayer what, what, what does it say about this what all do they do look at verses 17 and, and following
Exactly. What's that say to us about approaching problems and dilemmas and the condition of the world? Being men and women of prayer. Being men and women of prayer. Exactly. And then we see what happens. God makes his plan, his plan known to Daniel. He, he gives Daniel this vision and this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. He tells Daniel what it was and then what it means. And now notice what Daniel does. Daniel immediately runs out the door and runs to Nebuchadnezzar, right? No. That's not what he does. What's he do? He gives God the credit. He praises God. God gives him an answer. And instead of just running out the door and running to his life's on the line. Remember that. You would expect him to get the answer. And man, he jumps up off his knees and he flies to Nebuchadnezzar. But he praises God. He takes time to thank God. Boy, we're big on asking God for stuff. But do we take time to thank God? Daniel took time to thank God. And he gives all of the credit to God. All of the credit. Now, thirdly, I want you to see the dream detailed. Beginning there in verse 31. The, the dream is both simple and strange. The king saw an enormous statue made of four different metals, a head of gold, a chest of silver, belly and thighs of uh, bronze, legs of iron, feet and toes of iron mixed with clay. Now, the statue isn't doing anything. It's not moving. It's not speaking. So what's... What's the standout characteristic of the statue? It's components. Again, it's not speaking. It's not moving. It's not carrying out some kind of action. The standout characteristic of it is the different components, the different metals. What could all this mean? Then suddenly a stone strikes the feet and shatters the entire image. The pieces are blown away and only the stone is left and it becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Now, notice two things right off. There is a progressive deterioration in value from top to bottom. A deterioration in value from top to bottom. We're going from gold all the way down to what? Clay. And mixed with iron. 
But while there is, while there is this decline in value, what do we see an increase in? Strength. We see an increase in strength. Silver is stronger than gold. Iron is stronger still. So until you get to the clay, there's a decrease in value, but increase in strength. I'm talking about world empires here. Then you get to the bottom. There's iron, but while it's the strongest of all, it's mixed with clay. And what's that do? Shows some instability. Yeah. Some instability. Iron mixed with clay. So Daniel explains the dream. Each metal stands for a world kingdom or world empire. The first is identified. The head of gold. And he says, you Nebuchadnezzar are the head of gold. And... Babylon, from 606 down to, does anybody know? Five thirty-six. Now, it's fitting that Babylon would be called the golden kingdom it was saturated with gold when Herodias the Greek historian visited Babylon about a hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar's reign he wrote that he had never seen so much gold in all his life he had never even imagined that there could be so much gold in the world Jeremiah 51 verse 7 says Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand. Jeremiah 51 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Then we learn from Daniel 8, or we will see if we were gonna keep studying through Daniel, from Daniel 8. The next two are the Medo-Persian Empire and the Greek Empire. The chest and arms of silver represents the Medo-Persian Empire. Which, there's a little bit of overlap here, but I'm going to run out of room on the board here too. A little bit of overlap here from when it started really coming to power about five 38 BC and then it goes all the way down to 331 the Medo-Persian Empire the two arms most likely represent the two arms of the empire 
You have the Medes and the Persians. Then the third is Greece, represented by the belly and thighs of bronze. The Greek Empire began under Philip of Macedon and then his famous son who? Alexander the Great, yes. Bronze is used to symbolize his kingdom. Incidentally, Alexander began dressing his uh, soldiers in, in uh, armor made out of bronze. And then a fourth... Whoops. I told you I was going to run out of room. So you have... Babylon... Medo-Persia, the Greeks, I didn't, I didn't jot down the exact dates, but uh, right after the Medo-Persian, let me come over here, what do we have after the Greeks? The Roman. Now, remember, right, coming right out of the Greeks... After Alexander dies prematurely, what happens to the Greek Empire? Split up into four. And you get into the intertestamental time between the Old Testament and New Testament. The 400 silent years, I've told you before, they were anything but silent. And, and then the Romans that came to power. What was it? I think 63 B.C.? 67. Scripture doesn't say the fourth kingdom is wrong, but history indicates that's the only kingdom that, that fits. Now, the Romans conquered Alexander's empire through what became known as the Iron Legions of Rome. The Roman legions were, were noted for their ability to crush all resistance with an iron fist and an iron heel. In verse 40, what's verse 40 tell us? Look at verse 40. Following that kingdom, there will be a, a fourth one as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The Roman Empire was ruthless. Now, by the way, the Roman Empire... What, what happened to it? What, remember what I said about Medo-Persian, the arms? Okay. What do we know about the Roman Empire and the image here, the statue? What happened with the Roman Empire? Okay. But before that, it divided between what? 
East and West. Exactly. It divided between East and West. Now, it, it's highly significant that no world empire ever arose uh, after the Roman Empire broke up. No, no major one. It, it's, what I mean by that, it's out of the Roman Empire that Western civilization developed. In a sense, though the old Roman Empire no longer exists, its influence still does and is felt through all the nations that came out of the territory that it once ruled. Now, there's some guessing as to what the ten toes of, of the image, the, the ten toes, what, what those mean. It must mean that in the end times, during, during the, the end days, there will be some type of confederacy that rules with the beast. Many have even seen maybe there's going to be some kind of revised Roman Empire. It'll be strong like the Roman Empire, but weak because it'll not truly be unified. And that's why it'll be the iron mixed with clay, you know, speculation about all of this but I want you to look at verse 45 uh, excuse me 44 and 45 during the reigns of those kings notice what happens next the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness and it will stand forever. So here's a fifth empire. What does this represent? Christ. Christ, yes. Write down Isaiah. 9-7. In Isaiah 9-7, which is a prophecy of the birth of Christ, what does 9-7 say? That of his kingdom, again it's prophesying about the Christ child, of his kingdom, he will bring in a kingdom that will what? It will last forever. Think about it. With the birth of Christ, this fifth kingdom breaking in, still being added to, still growing, and it will never, ever, ever end. Amen? And then one day, Christ coming will bring to an end everything built by human hands. Quoting from Psalm 118.22, this is the stone that the builders rejected that has become what? The capstone. And Peter uses that image to describe Jesus. 
The stone that has been rejected has become the capstone. Now there's a bit of interesting history to that image. James Montgomery Boyce writes about it, as, as do others. There's an old rabbinic parable used to explain Psalm 118. And here's what he says about that. When Solomon's temple was being built, it was forbidden for the sound of hammers to be heard at the job site because it was a holy place of worship. You can't have worship with construction going on in the background, so it had to be quiet. What this meant for the construction was that each and every 20-ton stone had to have a shop drawing and was made several miles away in the quarry. Several miles away, each stone was carefully cut for its exact spot in the temple. From the very start, there was a plan for each stone. The very first stone to be delivered was the capstone. But that's the last stone needed in construction. So the builder said, what's this? This doesn't look like any of the first stones we need. Put it over there for now. Well, years went by and the grass grew over the capstone and everyone generally forgot about it. Finally, the construction was done and the builder said, send us the capstone. And the word came back from the quarry, we already did. They were confused. Then someone remembered what they had done with the very first stone sent to them. It was taken from its lowly position among the overgrown weeds where it had been forgotten and was honored in the final ceremony to complete the temple. Thus the scripture says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Now, notice what Daniel says about this kingdom. What's the descriptions he gives to it? First, it's not made by human hands. Second, it will smash all earthly kingdoms. Third, what will, what will be the magnitude of it? It will be universal and eternal. And finally, it will be immutable. All these different kingdoms and this final rock cut out of the mountain, not by human hands, smashes all the others. The kingdoms of this world, the scripture says, will become what? The kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And of that kingdom there shall be no end. Well, some lessons. Uh-huh. It will become universal 
and eternal. Mm -hmm. Did you not fix my board? David was going to put me a surface on this board that it would erase better. <laughs> I've got to pick on him. <laughs> Ooh, now look at this. It doesn't want to write at all. <laughs> History. is not dictated by man, but by God. Folks, we need to remember that. Again, what scriptures say, God raises one up and puts others down. Right? Every great ruler thinks he's calling the shots, right? But he's not. He's not. Romans 13 and other places in the Bible remind us of what? The powers that be are ordained by God. Even voters entering the ballot box might think that they're controlling history. And let's be reminded, we're not. I read an, an amazing statement about this. It says, in some sense that we can't fully understand, God works through the free choices of His creatures to bring to the forefront the people he has chosen. Second truth. The best man can build... will come crashing down. And then third and last, Jesus Christ is the central figure of history. He's the rock. What's Philippians 2 say? That even though now Christ 
has humbled himself by becoming a man and even dying the, a cruel death of crucifixion. Yet what's Paul going on to say in Philippians 2? What's God done with Christ? He has exalted him and given him the name that is above all names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Amen? As it says in the Bible, with Christ being the capstone, either we fall on him and are broken, or he will fall on you and crush you. You either humble yourself and fall on him and are broken, or he will fall on you one day and crush you. Now, folks, as I've pointed out in this chapter on hope, the point is God puts us in places to represent him so that others can come to know him. What happens in the end? Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Daniel's God is God. And did you also notice Daniel didn't forget his buddies either, right? His buddies had prayed... And so what's, what's Daniel have done with them? Has them appointed. You got to love that about Daniel too. He didn't, he didn't forget those who helped him, right? <clears throat> but God puts us in places to represent him. And, and the hope, we see the hope now as we work in like Daniel working in his culture to bring about faith in Israel's God. God puts us in places to be witnesses of Christ that pagans come to know him. But in the end, God's going to wrap everything up in Christ. And the mess that things are in now, guess what? The mess is coming to an end. The mess is coming to an end one day. And Christ's kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever and ever. What we see going on in the world today isn't the final chapter. The key question is, are you in Christ? Because if you're not in Christ, there is no hope. There is no hope. But if you're in Christ, I don't care how bad things might look to you now. God's going to have the final say so. And his children are going to rule and reign with him one day. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope that we see in the book of Daniel. How you use Daniel to spread your message and how Nebuchadnezzar and 
others came to know you. And Lord, for what you tell us, even today through the book of Daniel, that you're in charge and you're wrapping up human history according to your plan. We're not going to wrap it up. It's not going to be by human might. Lord, history is his story, your story. And we thank you for that. And Lord, until Christ comes, help us to be about being salt and light where you put us. Daniel could have easily used the excuse that he was in a faraway country. And what difference could he make? And yet he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Lord, he became your servant, not just for a few years, but for decades, for 70 years and beyond, even until Cyrus the Persian came to power. Daniel was your man in a pagan court. And he influenced people for you. Lord, help us to be that way in a pagan world. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.